Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Eloisa Trinidad, who does so many things and wears so many hats that it's hard to list them all, is going to be joining Jasmine. And one of our favorite things that she does is to be the executive director of Chili's on Wheels New York, which is working to make vegan food accessible to folks in need. She's just an incredible powerhouse. That's like one one hundredth of what we talk about that she does. I mean, th- she wears a lot of hats and I'm just so inspired. I absolutely loved this interview. And on this week's Flock bonus segment, I'll be continuing my conversation with Eloisa. So if you are a Flock member, you'll get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And of course, if you're a Flock member, please join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have some very inspiring guests and some excellent conversations about about all sorts of stuff, focusing mostly on activism. But, you know, it's pretty wide ranging. So if you're a member of the Flock, check out the Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can set up a one-on-one conversation with Jasmine too. Yeah, I love those. So email info at ourhenhouse.org to set up a time to meet with me to talk about your activism. So let's start by acknowledging the absolute shit show that our world is in right now. And I'm talking about Ukraine. Yeah, it's hard to think about anything else. Yeah. Right. It is. I know you've been pretty tied to your doom scrolling recently. Like many people, it's hard to take my eyes away from from what's happening. And of course, by the time you hear this, other things may have happened that haven't happened yet. It's all very frightening. But one thing I did want to talk about, I mean, we're not going to talk be talking a lot about Ukraine on the podcast, but I wanted to mention specifically how it now seems completely accepted that people who are evacuating or fleeing or whatever are going to be taking their pets. I mean, everything I saw from mainstream news stories to to, you know, posts from animal rights activists, everything included information about about the fact that people were all bringing their pets or going to the bomb shelters with their pets and had pictures of pets and the work that uh, animal shelters in Poland, and I guess in other countries, I saw ones in Poland who are caring for pets who somehow do become detached from their people. Such an enormous sea change. I think people who haven't been doing this for long might not realize that that used to be, it was just not a thing. I mean, if you remember Katrina, it was like everybody just had to leave their animals behind and there was nothing about it. And and of course, there was a huge scandal about it. And that's how all of this started. But it really has changed. I mean, I, I just found it extraordinary. Yeah, totally. Well, it's good to know that there's that like Eensy beansy little bright light in the middle of this dark, dark, dark place that we're in right now. And it's hard to know how to continue talking. But, you know, I do want to add one thing. We've talked about this before when the world has just been in ruins, which in so many ways it is nowadays. But as animal activists, we're so used to having to like continue on in our lives while we know the atrocity going on behind closed doors to different individuals. And so I wonder if in some way, I'd like to hope that we're better situated to deal with continuing on despite all of these horrors. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, though I'm, you know, I don't know whether I'm really very good at it. But yeah, I think most people are not used to like putting aside trauma and just going on with their everyday lives. And, And that is something that that we do every single day. So I guess we are, for for good or ill, I guess that is something that we are kind of used to. Well, speaking of things that we're used to that are horrible, I promise we'll turn this around soon. (laughs) So COVID, there was uh, some new evidence suggesting that as we originally thought, it stemmed from this live market, not a lab, which... I think I missed the memo because I thought that it was, I always thought that it had come from a live market, but I guess at some point that was doubted and now it's definite. I mean, maybe it's another opportunity for getting it in the news or something, getting those op-eds written and, and understanding that the consumption of animals, regardless of where or where they come from, is just 
unnatural, archaic act that we can boycott, you know? Yeah, I think it's really important, though you seem to have missed the memo on this. Uh, I think the waters did get really, really muddied. You know, the there was there were rumors in the beginning that it might have come from a lab. And then there seemed to be like scientific acceptance that not that that was true, but that that was possibly true and that we were never going to know where it really came from. And now there are these two reports that, you know, just go back to the original theory and say, yeah, like the, the evidence is very strong that it came from a live market in Wuhan and, you know, just proving that you put a lot of mistreated and, and abused animals in the same place and keep them there. Of course, a lot of the reporting likes to pretend that, you know, they have to be exotic animals. Like, no, like we can't do this to animals and have, well, it's the same thing in factory farms. It's the same thing in a million different ways. We can't put all these animals together in these horrible conditions and expect to not have diseases percolate. It's like we're actually creating labs to create viruses that are going to infect people. You know, sooner or later, one crosses over. So, yeah, I don't think this got the attention that it should have because there's so much other news perhaps. But but I assume that, you know, somebody might be paying attention. It just seems unbelievable that COVID, given this evidence, that all of this comes from what we do to animals that not more is being done to stop doing it. I, all right, I'm trying not to be depressing. So talk about talk about something cheerful. Okay, okay, okay. I do have something cheerful with a little bit of a depressing element to it on a personal level. But the cheerful thing is that the incredible iconic restaurant Slutty Vegan is opening in Brooklyn. I interviewed Pinky Cole, who runs it for Veg News last year, and like she's just such a hero of mine. And this restaurant is all the rage for a reason. The depressing part is that we used to live in Brooklyn and we would have been able to go there daily. Yeah, it's pretty depressing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder when they're opening in upstate New York. Uh, I guess I guess it's not high on their list. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm sure it's like, you know, Rochester is definitely one of the next places. Definitely. Well, I mean, last week, I think we mentioned that the RNS TV show is now having a second chance at life by way of Unchained TV, which is Jane Villas Mitchell's project. That studio would have been right around the corner from Slutty Vegan. We could have eaten yes. there constantly. Which is also another shameless plug to, to download that streaming app for Unchained TV and search for our house. You'll be able to watch our old TV shows. But yeah, Slutty Vegan is just the absolute best, most decadent, incredible food ever in the world. And I think we should probably make a trip down to Brooklyn. We don't ever talk about like food news like this, but for some reason, this, this is something that I'm like legitimately so excited about, especially because, oh, I think I am not the only person who has seen so much about Slutty Vegan and just has never been able to try it. I mean, it's, it's a frustrating fact of life. Another frustrating fact of life is how bad the advice in the mainstream media can be around food. So the more places like Slutty Vegan pops up, the happier I am personally. I was just watching the Today Show this morning. It was uh, like on while I was getting dressed. And the executive director of AARP was on and, with a nutritionist. And they were talking about the different dietary needs that people who are aging need to consider. And like... I'm not a nutritionist. I, lo I love it when people say that. I'm not a doctor. You're not? I'm not a nutritionist. <laughs> you're not? But all of the information they were giving was so incorrect. Like, I know that. That's bad. Yeah. They said that you needed to get 25 grams of proteins per meal. And of course, all of the... That, like, how do you even get 25 grams of protein? Yeah, I mean, it is true. As you get older, you need more protein. That That's true. You don't need that much more protein. Well, we, we're hardly a country that's lacking in protein. You know, like they, they, of course, were only showing the animal products as well. And, you know, for the protein category. And then they walk over and there's like fresh fruit and vegetables. And I'm like, oh, thank God, finally. Then they say, make sure that you get enough, you know, that you're hydrating enough. They walk over to another table and there's like a pitcher of water and like a cup of coffee. And they said, one of the ways to hydrate is to drink a lot of coffee. I swear to God. Now, <laughs> as I was watching this, I happened to be hydrating with my coffee, but I am not fooling myself. I am an addict. 
I'm not drinking coffee for my health. And doesn't doesn't coffee like dehydrate you? Or I, I could be making that up. I don't exactly. know. Exactly. No, no, that's exactly true. So every time there's like a study that talks about how coffee is good for you, I like wave it like a flag. Like, ha ha ha, I told you so. The other thing is, is I mean, not to be indelicate, but as you get old, I mean, you have to at least mention that hydrating can be inconvenient as you get older, because I think that almost everybody as they get older, like hydration tends to move through your body more efficiently, <laughs> to, to put it nicely. You said not to be indelicate. That was so funny. Uh, also true. I would, I, I saw here. Anyway, this conversation is going off the rails. Yeah, it's deteriorating. <laughs> so let's have Eloisa bring us back. Yes. All right. Now I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about all the things that she does. Eloisa Trinidad is the executive director, as I mentioned, at Chili's on Wheels, New York, which focuses on making veganism accessible to communities in need. She also co-founded the first free vegan community fridge in New York, which provides fresh produce, pantry items, and non-dairy alternatives to hundreds of food insecure individuals and families. She is also the co-founder and executive director at Vegan Activist Alliance and previously worked at the Economist Feeding the Future campaign. She sits on the board of directors at Plant Powered Metro New York, is New York chapter president at Hip Hop is Green, and is on the advisory boards for Center for Science and the Public Interest, the Agriculture Fairness Alliance, and the Vegan Museum. She's won numerous awards for her policy work, and her favorite food is fruit. She will be joining Jasmine right after this. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Welcome to our henhouse, Eloisa. Thank you so much, Jasmine. I'm so excited to be here and be talking to you. This is great. I'm super, super excited. I am too. I have been so looking forward to this interview. I have so many questions for you. <laughs> so according to your bio, the folks who raised you lived off the land taught you to be self-sustainable, and passed down much ancestral knowledge. I feel like maybe we should start this conversation by learning more about what sounds like a truly extraordinary childhood. Can you tell us a bit about it? Sure, absolutely. Um, I was raised by such amazing individuals. They were my great-great-grandparents. So they were already over like 100 years old when they raised me. So you know, an interesting way to grow up. I think I grew up in a bubble, even though I didn't realize it at the time. And uh, my great-grandmother was such an amazing woman. She ran the household, such a matriarch, which really inspired me in so many ways as a little girl. And she did so much. And, you know, my great-grandfather, uh, we had land, we grew food. And so most of our food, really, uh, we grew ourselves. So there was very little that we were purchasing. I think I didn't, I didn't understand plastic even until I, I moved to the U.S. So I grew up in Quisqueya in the Dominican Republic. And very much in a way where, you know, other folks would, you know, we are so used to trying to model ourselves after the Western world. And so when you grow up in that way, it's actually looked down upon, right? You're a hick, you're from the countryside, or you're indigenous, or you're Afro-Indigenous. But for me, you know, I grew up so differently. I grew up with that really being highlighted, you know, with really being taught about caring about the land and about every little animal that was on the land. My great-grandfather would take mangoes and, and teach me like, okay, there's a little worm in here. You can still eat it, but you're just going to have to pick this little guy and put him on the ground, you know? <laughs> and so that was like the real organic food. And, you know, I grew up seeing all of that and my great-grandmother raising children that were just left to her care. No formal adoption, just people dropping kids off. And she raised over a dozen kids that were not hers. So she's just such a legend where we're from. And, you know, I'm just so grateful that they really 
passed down all this knowledge to me. And I think it was, you know, the first introduction for me about mutual aid. You know, she would invite people over to the house. She would cook and she would share with everyone. She would let people stay in our homes that didn't have other places to stay. And so I, I grew up in that way. And I grew up understanding that, you know, community was such an important aspect of, of how we operate in this world. Wow. I have to say it makes so much more sense now because I saw somewhere on your bio that you said you were raised by centennials and I <laughs> like could not make sense of it. And I'm like, are her parents 22? Like I honestly <laughs> was so confused. I was Googling it. I'm like, what I am I missing? I think it's the wrong term, but I think it just sounds better than the, than the actual, I, for, I forget what the official term is for somebody who's over a hundred, but I like to use the term centennials. They're over a century old. <laughs> I love it. I think you should keep using it. And I'm truly amazed already by everything you've shared. How would you say your childhood shaped your life's purpose? Uh, in every way. And so just seeing my family do so much for others and really growing up around plants, I mean, just the healing power of plants was very, very much addressed to me at an early age. You know, we really used herbal medicine in each and every way that we could. And so I understood that power very early on and the power of food. And so just the fact that we had land where we could grow our food, I saw the difference so early with people not having access to that and not having access to food. And so while we may not have had a lot, we had something that was very significant, which was that access you know, my family would go fishing. And I think that that's, that really shaped me because to me, everything that was, I was being taught was inconsistent with fishing. And so, you know, I would see the, the fishes and I'm like, wait, there's something going on here. I like this animal struggling to get away. And that's really sort of a moment for me as a child where, you know, there was all these great things that I learned and that were passed down to me. But then, you know, I did find an inconsistency there. And I was just always so attached to our fellow animals that to me, it really impacted me. And I just said, you know, at, at a young age, like six or seven years old, I'm like, this is not right. You know, I think like most children, right? Most children go through that when they discover exactly who they're they're eating. Right. I totally agree. And I talked to so many of our guests about this, about how they and, and me had, had this like innate childhood instinct to leave the animals alone. And it's just, it it's so inexplicable to me how effortlessly that gets drummed out of us. And then when we eventually come back to this sort of lifestyle of, you know, compassion and justice, we look back and we're like, wait, I knew, I knew that. I always knew it was always in me. Right. And so I was very lucky that my family was supportive. So it wasn't as if I was, you know, giving up a huge chunk of what we ate. It was like, okay, you want to eat more plants? You know, Fine. Like we have a ton of that. And so they have been extremely supportive. And, you know, my mom's still pescatarian, which really bothers me, of course, but they've been so supportive in the work that I do. And since I was a child to really help me in this process. So, you know, it creates a bigger challenge because it's really hard to hold people accountable when they're being so supportive of you. But yeah, they're they're just amazing in, in that way. And they have been since I was a kid, which really helped me on this journey. I didn't know what vegan was. I didn't know what veganism was. I didn't know that there were other people who didn't want to exploit animals. I just knew that something was being done and that it was wrong and I didn't want to do it. I love that. I mean, that's just the basic bottom line. I know that anti-colonial thinking is fundamental to how you approach issues. Can you tell us? the basic framework you use to raise awareness of how the history of colonization is embedded in our relationships with each other and the natural world? Absolutely. You know, I think Western colonization in the last 529 years has interrupted so much in our development, whether that is for Black and Indigenous people and their relationship to the land and to animals and the disruption of our food systems, right? And pushing us towards a more, a system more dependent on animals. And so that history to me is extremely important. Um, you know, my ancestors, not saying that all indigenous people obviously eat this, this way, there's so many indigenous people throughout the world, 
but my ancestors were already highly plant-based people who already had, you know, such a connection to this earth and who wanted to look after this earth and who were. And so it's important for me to really spread information and educate folks on the fact that animals were used as a tool in colonization, you know, whether we were talking about pigs or sheep, uh, cows, the dairy industry, those all came out of this system of exploitation that took animals from sustenance. Obviously, we have no right to kill any being. However, going from sustenance to exploitation for profit is just where we're at now and how we got to factory farms in this system. And understanding that basis and understanding that we have to align ourselves with indigenous people across the world who are protecting our biodiversity is extremely important. I think in our movement, there's such a division uh, where a lot of times we tend to feel like, no, we're different, we're vegan, we're here and you're there. And, you know, I don't think that that gets us anywhere. I believe in building alliances and coalitions and working together and finding that common ground and understanding the history of how we got here. And so obviously humans have been exploiting animals for millennia. However, it has continuously increased. And so why is that happening? What systems are at work? Who's in power? Who's making those decisions? Even climate change, how has it affected us, you know, in the last 500 years? Capitalism. And so all those things are interconnected. And, you know, it is my hope that folks understand that the folks who are most impacted by these systems are the folks who have been trying to prevent these systems from growing more and more. Wow. Ah, there's so much there. My next question was actually, what do you mean when you talk about collective liberation? But maybe you're already, maybe that's what you're talking about. I'd love to know why this is so fundamental to your personal mission. You know, I believe that all oppression is interconnected. And I believe even for us indigenous people or Afro-descendants, even for us who are marginalized, we still hold privilege compared to other beings, right? I'm an able-bodied individual. I'm not disabled. And so if I am next to a person who is disabled, even though I'm marginalized in certain ways, you know, I have a privilege that I didn't earn just by the fact that the world is designed for me because I can move around freely. And so understanding that we're all part of this system that's oppressing all beings on, in one way or another, whether that's the immediate victims who are our fellow animals or the folks who are picking and growing our food who cannot afford the food that they're actually picking and growing. You know, I set up a free plant-based community fridge and the, a lot of the folks that were coming to our fridge were people delivering food. And so when you see that, you understand that the system goes beyond just this divide, this black and white, or okay, it's just animals being oppressed. And so collective liberation is important. The old quote goes, you know, no one's free when others are oppressed. And, you know, at the root of all of this is if indigenous people don't have their sovereignty, if the people who have been continuously marginalized by this system in, in, in the last over 500 years we're not going to get anywhere. Everyone has to be included in the fight for liberation. The world is not a straight, non-disabled, white male world. That's just not the world. And so if we want liberation, we have to be very aware of that. We have to understand that people are struggling and how do we meet them where they are so we can include them in the fight and empower them to speak up for our fellow animals. Mm, so well said and so true. You use the phrase beyond human persons to talk about animals. Can you tell us about the meaning of that for you? <laughs> I've gotten a little bit of backlash on that because, you know, personhood has a very legal definition. And I think that we are all persons, you know, and we just happen to be different species. And, you know, our, our fellow animals are just different species from us. And so I think language is so important in the FIFO liberation. And so to me is if I believe in personhood, I am going to call my fellow animals a beyond human person. Personhood cannot just be given to humans. And that's what we're fighting for, right? For that liberation, for that autonomy that they deserve. I mean, they're born into this world and they have a natural right to their existence, just like we do. And so I, I'm always trying to challenge language in every way that I can, because I think language is such an important part of the work that we do. Although even some vegans make fun of me for, for always challenging the language part, but I, I think it's a, an extremely important part to already start 
with the language saying, you know, they're beyond human persons. They're beyond human. They might not, they don't need our brain to, to feel, you know what I mean? We cannot continue defining what thinking is, what feeling is by the human brain. And so I think in our movement, we're still defining what person means by the definition of human. And so that, that definitely is something that bothers me because that's how I see them as just somebody like me, but that is a different species. In my household of two humans, three dogs and a cat, we refer to all of our, you know, littles as, as people. And so I think, yeah, it makes total sense to me. Um, Yeah. I'm sure that you get backlash though, because you are sort of teetering on a lot of issues that would be divisive to a lot of people. You know, I, I know that when I first started in in the world of animal rights, you know, nearly 20 years ago, I remember there was a lot of challenge when anyone would talk about any of the overlapping issues of oppression and marginalization and how we need a sort of all-encompassing strategy to liberate animals of all kinds. So I, you know, I didn't even have this on my list of questions, but you're making me think of it. Like, how, how do you think that's changed since 20 years ago? And how do you deal with the backlash? So, you know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. When I started Vegan Activist Alliance about two years ago, you know, it was a response to that very same thing. I was seeing in the movement that, you know, trans folks were not being included. They were just not being respected. I mean, just something as simple as a pronoun for an organization to tell somebody how you identify doesn't matter here it's completely ridiculous. And so I saw that. And obviously as an Afro-Indigenous woman, I saw how, you know, Black and Indigenous communities were targeted. You know, I've been told certain things like, you people have been oppressed, so you should understand oppression better than anybody and should stop exploiting animals. You know, I would never say that to anybody. If I had a Jewish person in front of me, I, I would never say, you know, your ancestors experienced the Holocaust. So you must stop exploiting animals. I mean, where you know, humans exploit animals all over the world. This is a global thing. It's a, it's a global idea. We're fighting against an idea. And so I think we tend to target individuals a lot of times versus the system versus the idea that has continued on for millennia. And so I think right now in our movement, you know, I got pushback about VAA when I started it. You know, you're not focusing on the animals, you're not centering the animals, and you're taking focus away from the animals. But the truth is that we're in a movement where we're asking people to change to change their views, to change how they look at our fellow animals. And how can we be in this movement speaking for those who are not heard and who are silenced and then not having genuine conversations with the humans who we're asking to change? It it just doesn't make sense. So I think we're at the start of this paradigm shift. I think that, you know, the more we push, the more it gets out there. And so, you know, I'm that type of person that I just really don't give a shit. I'm going to do what's in my heart. And I think I believe in collective liberation. When I see anyone, regardless of species that's suffering, it creates a feeling in me. So how could I go against that feeling? It's just, you know, and I think a lot of us have that, have that feeling, right, of wanting to help. And so why would we limit ourselves and, and think for any second that we're going to liberate animals and humans are still under oppression in so many ways. And somehow we're going to obtain that when as a species, we haven't even obtained treating our fellow humans in a way that's respectful and equitable. I think for us as vegans is we want to really separate things. We want to put things in boxes because it, it feels easier. It feels better. And so I understand that. I understand that this is overwhelming in so many ways. And, and so there is this desire to do that, but that's not the way the world works. These are complex systems of oppression that are going to take very long to dismantle. And I really don't believe that unless we understand how all of that oppression is interlinked and interconnected and the root causes of that oppression and exploitation, we're not doing the animals the best that we can for, you know, for them. Well, you mentioned the Vegan Activist Alliance, and I wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Uh, you, you pretty much just explained the mission of the organization and the reason behind it, but I noticed you have a sign-up sheet on the website. What can people expect to receive when they sign up with the Alliance? Like, What kind of activist work do you do to help people? 
So we do quite a few things. And so one of the things that we do is what we call activations, where we do educational outreach out on the street. We really focus on communities that may otherwise not be included in activations and, you know, these types of activism. We went to the Bronx, you know, not that long ago, and we had just the best time ever. And folks of all backgrounds just coming up to us saying, what is this? Like, And, and folks who were already on their way, who didn't want to eat animals, who didn't know, like, wh- how do I get started? And so when you sign up, you know, that's part of what we do. Uh, we also do marches as well. We're really focusing on bringing education. So we are designing political education for our activists, just because that's such an important aspect of of systems change. Um, And we believe that we need to empower our activists to go beyond the streets. And beyond that, we're a safe space for folks. And we want to work more towards that. We provide a once a month holistic healing, mental health and well-being. This work is traumatizing in many ways. And so we really believe that healing is a collective effort, not just on the individuals. We say self-care a lot, right? And we put it on the individual and the individual, but community has to be part of that healing process as well. And so that that's the way that we operate um, at VAA. It's just with collective liberation-led and systems change focus while raising awareness for the individual folks that see us out on the street. Yeah, I totally agree about the collective care and and community care and the parts of our hen house that I love the most actually really play into that and, and support that mindset that we need to all be in this together. And I love, I love to hear about the efforts that you're taking Switching gears, I want to talk about Chili's on Wheels. We had Michelle Carrera on to talk about it a long time ago. So let's catch up on what the organization is doing to make veganism accessible to communities in need. In fact, it, it's now not just in New York City, but it's it's a network. So tell us about it and what the various chapters are doing. Yeah, so New York City, Chili Stone Wheels expanded. Uh, we decentralized our network so that way all of our individual chapters who have more autonomy over what they do. We really believe that folks who are in their own community know what to do for their community and we want to support that always and empower that. And so we've expanded quite a bit um, due to the pandemic. When the pandemic started, I just... My heart just dropped. Um, the New York City public school system did not know what they were going to do to feed our students. It, everybody was just confused, <laughs> apparently. And I just said, you know, to Michelle, we have to do something. What can we do? And, you know, she has been such a great friend and mentor. And I'm just very lucky that, you know, my end to this world has been with amazing femmes and women and folks from all of these different communities that have been fighting for liberation. And I just consider myself so lucky because a lot of folks do not get that introduction to this. And so we've expanded. We are delivering plant-based food to individuals and families. We're distributing at schools as well. We recently, um, in the last few years, have a partnership with Grow NYC, uh, which grows uh, food locally, so all organic, locally grown produce. And so we're continuing to expand. We have our hot meal shares, but everything else is growing. We launched the community fridge and we're actually working on launching more. Um, Right now, we're working with a vegan restaurant and their food is going to be by donation while we have the vegan fridge. So when we mean make it accessible, we're fighting to make it accessible, working on policy, aligning with anti-poverty groups in order to really address the issues as to why certain choices are not available and accessible to a lot of folks who are poor uh, and who may be from marginalized communities. So we've expanded quite a bit. Wow, that's amazing to hear. What would you say is the difference between a highly successful chapter and ones that have not been as active? It really comes down to the team and, you know, the support system um, just that's created within the chapter. You know, this is not easy work. It's challenging work. Our volunteers cook, our volunteers deliver food, our volunteers fill fridges. We're out on the on the ground, you know, Michelle still volunteers, even though she's no longer the executive director. And I may be doing executive director work, but I'm on the ground, you know, when people are in need and it's immediate 
And so that's one part where you really have to have such a support system. Beyond that, if you're in a place where it's not as easy to access food and rescue food, that's also going to interfere with operations. The cost of food is just astronomical and keeps going up. And so, you know, that's a model that we we don't want to do. We don't want to just purchase food. We want to rescue food, right? And so those those are the two things that I think can make or break um, a chapter. So you mentioned to the vegan community fridge, but let's go back to that and bringing it back to New York City. How exactly does the vegan community fridge work? So it's open 24 hours and basically um, it's set up in front of a gym and people can access it at any time or drop off food as well to donate. The fridge has plant-based all over and it says no animal products. And when we started the fridge, I was very confident it was going to work. The folks that we collaborated with the Fridge who are running the Fridge now, they're not a vegan organization and they were concerned. And I was like, no, it's going to work. Trust me. And uh, it has. I mean, people have been so supportive of it. The Fridge is around seven shelters and also NYU is nearby. So we get an influx of students, of people who are at the shelters, completely unhoused individuals, people who are coming down from different neighborhoods that are working, who are not making enough to buy healthy food. And so it's quite a lot of folks, just a diverse group of folks and the community boards around the area also supported us. And it was just like, all of these fridges exist, but this is the first vegan one and everyone got so excited about it. And it was just incredible to see. And I'm like, you know what? That's what happens when you find common ground. That's what happens when you come together with other folks, whether they're vegan or not vegan. And now this serves as a way, you know, as educational outreach. It's there. It's speaking for the animals when we're not. There's literature there on veganism. And so it does the work when we're not there. And that's what I always aspire to do is like, how do I fight for my fellow animals when I'm not there, when I need rest? And I, I think that's why coalitions and alliances are so important. We're, we're not doing this work alone. And uh, we have to recognize that. Where is it? What, what corner? So it's on Bleecker Street, um, 9 Bleecker in Lafayette. Mm-hmm. So do you see this fridge as a project that could be replicated by activists in different locales? Absolutely. So there's already um, a ton of fridges. They're not vegan, uh, but they, you know, do supply some plant-based foods in New York City. Uh, In New York City, they were started by In Our Hearts, which they have some vegan folks there, although the organization is not vegan. And I believe completely that it can be replicated, sort of like if you build it, they will come. And, you know, people want to contribute. They they want to do good. And it's an easy way for people to donate. You have a, some vegetables, you have some plant-based milks, you can just drop it over the fridge. And so it's it completely be uh, replicated. There's so many resources online on how to start a fridge. The most challenging part is securing a place that's going to have the fridge plugged into the wall there. And that's really about it. But when you involve the community, for example, the folks that are there, the Anhouse folks, everybody's part of it. So they watch the fridge, <laughs> you know, they take care of the fridge and it's the same at our meal shares. And that's why it's so important to involve the community as part of the process, right? It's not us going into a community saying, hey, you have to go vegan here. It's like, oh, this is yours. We want you to care for it. And, you know, people automatically just join and and help. And so it can be very, very well replicated. That's promising. I love that. I love, uh, you know, when, when we started our hen house 12 years ago, kind of the basis of it was to create replicable ways that we can change the world for animals. And we've always sort of had an air of that on the podcast to try and bring on people like you who are doing things that can be replicated. And this is a very specific thing that can be replicated. Now, as if all of this weren't enough, you're also the New York chapter president at Hip Hop is Green. Can you tell us about that organization and what kind of work it is doing? Yeah, so Hip Hop is Green has been around for 12 years and we're the first vegan hip hop organization in the world. We're a national organization The organization was founded by Keith Tucker. And basically what we do is use the power of music and the power of hip hop to inspire and empower our youth to make decisions and changes that are good for them, for the planet and for our fellow animals. Our curriculum is really broad. It's nutrition, uh, 
sustainability, animal rights, animal welfare. Um, we talk to the kids about the disruption of food systems through colonization. We always have all of these amazing performers and the kids get super excited. We have folks that come to them to talk about, you know, animal sanctuaries and why the animals are there. We have a project that just recently launched. This is called the Cherry Street Farm Project. And we have a 10-week sustainability program. Out of the 28 kids in the cohort, 25 of them decided to go vegan after the program. Yeah, we have these kids when we do our presentations in our program, they text the teachers. So we do green dinners and, you know, the teachers are involved, the parents are involved and everybody learns about veganism. And we have kids texting and the parents texting the, the teachers, you know, what do I do now? My kid wants to go vegan. And it's so great to see. So in this program, we have a a teaching garden, a teaching farm. So they learn to grow the food through indigenous practices and so on. Then they get the education behind our food system. Then they go to the animal sanctuaries. And so they're getting everything. And it has just been amazing. And we're hoping to expand that program throughout the country. Wow. 25 out of 28 students. Yeah, it's just... it been really amazing. Mm-hmm. So I know that in addition to the hands-on work, like the community fridge, you're also working on systemic approaches, including supporting legislation. Can you tell us about the Healthy Future Students and Earth Pilot Program Act and what, what it would accomplish if passed? School food is such a a way for us to really target so many different things. A lot of our students in this country are food insecure, which most people do not realize. A lot of our children are experiencing hunger. Just switching to school food would completely spare so many animal lives, help us mitigating climate change. And so what this bill is looking to do, which was actually introduced by Representative Velasquez and Bauman because students were complaining about Meatless Mondays. So Meatless Monday was too dairy heavy and they were saying, you know, this is not what we want. This is not what we're asking for. And so then came the bill and we worked on the bill, shaped the bill. And now we're up to 27 sponsors. Um, We're having a Capitol Hill meeting soon, and we're really hoping to get this included in child nutrition reauthorization because of the fact that it meets so many different, so many checks, right? And so what's happening is that we're seeing a lot of our students really request more healthy food, more plant-based foods, whether those students are doing that for philosophical reasons because they're vegan or whether they're doing that because they want to fight climate change or because they come from a religion that requests for them to not eat animals. And so this is an equity issue. Um, It's also, you know, most students that are food insecure come from historically marginalized backgrounds. And so we really want to give our students a fair chance at succeeding in life. And we believe that this is the way to do it, to do it through nutrition. And yeah, we're pretty excited about it. Our coalition is very youth-centered, youth-focused. So we actually have students in our coalition that are guiding our work. So we want to center the folks who are experiencing this. You know, California just passed the state bill and they're going to have plant-based foods in schools. Uh, New York City now has fully vegan Fridays as well because of the work of Coalition for Healthy School Food, Black Veg Fest, Hip Hop is Green, and Chili Sewn Wheels, right? And what this work helps us do is when we're there, when we're speaking to these kids and to the youth about animal liberation and collective liberation, then the food is there and they experience the food. And so it's so it, it not only makes the system and the food system more equitable, but it also supports the work of really inspiring these kids to become active. And and they get so excited. I mean, when we talk about all of these things, they're writing notes down, they're checking their phones. What's the film that you just told me? And so I think a lot of times we tend to dismiss the youth, you know, and, and they're as young as middle schoolers, but they're just so excited when you tell them, you know what, we trust you to to make to do these things because you have power and we're going to show you what power you have. And they absolutely go for it. So we're, we're really excited about the bill. Definitely call your representatives to support the bill. We're, we're trying to get up to 100 sponsors. Well, and the bill is, of course, at, at the federal level. And I can imagine it's hard to get anything done at the federal level these days. It is extremely challenging. Um, it is at the federal level. So the good thing about that is that it would give access to schools even in the middle of the country, right? Because on the East and the West Coast, there's a lot of good changes happening. 
So it is federal and that is challenging. The dairy industry and the animal exploitation industry has so much power. When you sit in meetings and folks tell you, well, we can't do that or we can feed children this way because it's going to cost too much money. But, you know, the spending on the military budget keeps increasing. It's, it, you know, you just kind of, it, it's very hard. Let's just say, let's just say it's very, very challenging. And I think that it's also very humbling when we are in these meetings and, and we have to deal with the dairy industry or any industry that exploits animals it's sort of like, huh, you know, let me breathe because I know this work is so much more than I'm even thinking it is. And there's no time to argue and fight about the KFC nuggets, right? (laughs) The KFC plant-based nuggets, because you understand that at every minute of every moment, these industries are coming up with different ways to exploit our fellow animals. And not only that, they're preventing, you know, the government is so influenced by, by these industries that it's preventing us from just getting water even as the first options to kids. I mean, the fact that milk is the first thing and it's pushed on our children is completely wrong. I mean, our bodies are mostly water. We need water to live. And so from the food to what they drink, this is all being dictated by these industries. And it is extremely challenging, but we're not going to give up the fight. We're going to keep on fighting. Well, going to the local level for a moment, do you think that there will be substantial opportunities for change in New York City on the issues you're concerned about in light of Eric Adams becoming mayor? Absolutely. You know, I recently, I think it was just yesterday, he talked about climate change, I think, and he developed a new task force. And in his press conference, he said, you know, we talk about emissions and we talk about so many things, but we never talk about what's on our plate, right? Or who's on our plate, as I like to say. And I think that that's such an important aspect. With the Healthy Future Students and Earth Act, Congress has been talking amongst themselves. And what came back to us was that they're actually making connections now between food and climate change. And that was attributed in part to the bill. And so even if the bill doesn't pass, you know, we're, we're making progress. And, you know, on the New York City level, uh, we've already seen it. We now have fully vegan Fridays, which, you know, was a challenge. And the Coalition for Healthy School Food has been working forever on these issues. And there's now a state bill as well that is looking to provide plant-based foods for all students across the state. And so that's out as well. So I think that we're going, although there are concerns, obviously, as far as him being mayor outside of food policy, understandably so with policing and so on, on the food policy end, I do believe that there's going to be a lot of changes. Right, because on the food justice issues at the systemic level. I'm quoting you here. You're working on including submitting recommendations on food policy to amplify effective solutions to food insecurity and to address the inequities in the contributing systems. So can you tell us a little bit more about this and how you work on food insecurity while maintaining a vegan perspective? You know, I'm always the vegan in the room. (laughs) And so when I I do a lot of coalition work and when I do this work, basically I raise the issue of plant-based food uh, and plant-based drinks and milks and so on. But what I have found is that, as I said earlier, is aligning ourselves with folks who have common ground with us. And so submitting different recommendations for the mayor or for the state, for the governor and saying this is what has to be done, whether that means SNAP, whether that means different access. And those are very real, tangible things. How do we increase access through giving folks not just, you know, SNAP, but how they use SNAP and how SNAP can be used, things like this. And in getting the information out, because sometimes folks just don't have the information. You know, like Healthy Bucks in New York City, folks didn't even know that they could go to the farmer's market and they would get, you know, a better return on their spending because they would get about $2 back per every five. And so we make all those recommendations. We come together. There's the New York City Food Policy uh, Alliance, Bronx Impact Food Alliance as well. And these are all addressing the underlying cost, which is poverty. And if we're all thinking from that perspective that everyone has access to a kitchen, that everybody has access to time, 
in this process, then then we're failing not just the animals, we're failing people because that's just not that reality whatsoever. And and we see it time and time again. I, I see it. I see it when I deliver food. I I see the choices that people have to make. And it's really it's really heartbreaking. Many years ago, probably I'm gonna say 15 years ago, probably exactly when I was the campaigns manager for Farm Sanctuary, but based in New York City. I was involved in a coalition with many other groups on like a food print resolution. And we were in the room with lots of other in- local environmental groups. And it was, I-, I was not nearly as good as you at this because we ultimately reached an impasse and they wouldn't allow, they, they wouldn't take a- away the word reduce animal consumption and-, and replace it with eliminate. I consider this just as much, you know, my me falling short uh, with coalition building, but I really struggle with coalition building when it comes to compromising our bottom line of liberating animals. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah. You know, I think for me, I I always talk about it and I always bring it up. And the way that I approach it is we're expanding our definition of social justice and every species has a right to live and exist and a right to their autonomy and to their freedom. And I haven't found that within, you know, my coalition work that there has been a pushback against that. And perhaps because I don't make it about the other person, I'm not sure. I know that sometimes that can be challenging because trust me, a lot of times I want to, you know, that feeling is always there. But coming from the angle of, we have been eating plants forever. Plants are not new. This is what people are asking for. And that is the truth. And maybe perhaps it wasn't you falling short, but times are changing as well. I think people are recognizing that they don't need to eat animals in order to survive. Quite the opposite, that eating animals may be hindering their health and the planet. And so in one of our districts, which is a mostly Latinx immigrant area, they're requesting plant-based milk. And so we're working with their council member, with their representative, and we're saying, hey, now we're going to draft this milk equity letter to Congress. And here's the proof. Here's the proof that this is what people are asking for. And so I think having that experience on the ground is very valuable because you can't argue against that experience, even in a coalition setting, can keep pushing, you know, eating and exploiting animals. But if the people are asking for something else, then we have to listen to the people. And, you know, during this time, during that pandemic, uh, the New York City, um, services posted our number, specifically my personal number all over. It was just so out of this world. And we became known as the folks to provide vegan plant-based food, who these folks could go for healthy food. And so people were stopping, they, they stopped going to the pantries and they started going to us. And so that's how busy we have been. And they see it, they see the colors, they see that we care and they always receive informational pamphlets on veganism whenever we do our work. So they're getting the full scope of like, this is what veganism is about. And it's about liberation. It's not just about, you know, food. Well, I'm just thrilled that you're having, you're, you're making more headway there, a lot more headway. But I, and I do, and it was generous of you to say, mm, times have also changed. I do think that there is truth to that to some extent. But I also think that there's value in the fact that you and your work and your organizations and your affiliations are all encompassing. And they're not, you know, I think that when I worked for Farm Sanctuary in that capacity, it's possible that we were seen as like pushing the agenda of farmed animals, as opposed to also being concerned, of course we were, but also being concerned about, you know, world hunger issues and various other social justice issues. So I think you're right that it is a much broader social justice issue at that point, And this is part of it. So I also saw that your team participated in rescues and helped raise money for sanctuaries. Can you tell us about this? And also like, why do you believe in supporting rescue and sanctuary is, why do you think that's an important part of animal activism in, in, in addition to seeking systemic change? I feel that sanctuaries are just so important and, you know, it's sort of this, conflicting feeling for me because sanctuaries would not exist if we didn't, if we weren't exploiting animals, right? And so that's how it should be. That's how they should exist just on their own. And I think that 
they're so important because of the fact that liberation stories are important, whether we're liberating those animals or whether they fight for their own liberation, which happens often. And I, and I wish that within our movement, we would highlight all the animals that try to break free, that jump of, you know, all these trucks, because that's what they're doing. They're fighting for themselves. And so um, during the mass ritual slaughter that happens here in New York City and in New Jersey, you know, and, and across the country, our team, you know, they transport the animals, they transport the chickens, they rescue the animals. I've done it myself. It's challenging work. It's traumatizing work in a lot of ways. So you have to really be mindful how deep into it you get. But it's a way to really um, get back to understanding who you're fighting for and to recenter them in each and every way and, you know, raising funds for the sanctuary. And so for me, I'm always pushing that people should donate to sanctuaries. They just do such amazing work and do so much of it and care for so many beings. And, you know, they don't receive as much as they should be receiving, right? It's something that we always want to highlight. And for folks who do want to do rescue, it's something that, that we encourage as well because of the fact that, you know, it is rewarding work. And I think a lot of times when we're doing a lot of street activism or even systemic shame type of, you know, actions, we can get very, <laughs> very downhearted, very heavy hearted. And, you know, just having that relationship with our fellow animals, you know, in whatever way that it is without saviorism, I don't believe in that. <laughs> I think it's important in, in continuing to build that relationship between each other and, and seeing them as individuals. You know, every chicken, every fish, every cow, they're all different people. Everyone's an individual. So I think that's why sanctuaries are so important. Just, you know, and it, it gives us hope. And, and that's the world that we are hoping to see is where animals exist freely. I mean, you, you, you know, I can't, I don't have to explain it to you. You've been to sanctuary. Hey, I love the way you're saying it. It's like 1 billion percent. I just want that clip of what you just said to play everywhere all the time. <laughs> um, so my final question for you, and you actually did just touch on it. You ha seem to have such a sunny disposition. You seem so positive. I hear a lot of optimism. When I'm bringing up challenges, you're sort of spinning them into opportunities Tell me about that. Like, where do you get that from? <laughs> you know what? I've had a really challenging life. And I think that, you know, I've had a lot of good also, you know, but I think about this a lot and I'm like, am I just wired for positivity? And I don't like the toxic positivity because I also like to be like, hey, if I'm having a, a bad day, I'm having a bad day and I don't feel good right now. And it's okay, right? Like that also needs to be sort of, all of our feelings need to be acknowledged, you know? all of our emotions. But I think it's helpful for me to celebrate the small wins for everyone, for all of us as activists, as those, you know, fighting for liberation. For me as a woman, as an Afro-Indigenous woman, Latinx woman, you know, that's also very personal because I'm still fighting for myself in many ways. And if I didn't see that silver lining, if I didn't see all the good, because there is a lot of good, you know, there are a lot of people doing so many things for others, you know, I don't think I would make it. And so I think that that is a form of self-care for me is really focusing on all those things and the things that are challenging, looking at those things as opportunities to grow. And so that's how I move through life. And, you know, I've been like that since I was a kid. I feel a lot. Trust me, I cry. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just bawling all the time. Like, how can this be happening? How that's, how is this possible? But that crying and that release helps keep the smile on my face. I, I address all of the emotions and I think that, that that's important. Oh, I love that. So tell us how, tell our listeners how they can support your efforts and find you online. Go ahead. Tell me all the, all the Instagram handles, all the websites, all the things. <laughs> sure. The first thing that anyone and everyone can do is share a vegan meal with their neighbor, whether that neighbor is housed or on house. I think food brings people together. Or if you're not good at cooking, you can also whip up some fruity drink or something, you know, so a, a smoothie. I think just building those connections. But as far as my work on Instagram, uh, my personal Instagram is Elogata, is E-L-O-G-A-T-A. And then you can find Vegan Activist Alliance, uh, Chili Sun Wheels, as well as Hip Hop is Green. Our chapter for the New York City is NYC Hip Hop is Green. 
and yeah, that's uh, th- those are all the handles. They're all the, the same name everywhere. <laughs> Amazing. Well, please stay on with me for a little bit of a bonus interview. And Eloisa, thank you so much. This has been such a true joy and honor. I am absolutely now your biggest fan. So anybody who has uh, the similar thought as me is wrong because I am your biggest fan. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today on our house and for all that you do. Thank you, Jasmine. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Anxiety is arising very fast in Idaho, clearly. Uh, The Idaho legislature is seriously considering a bill that would involve personhood status. And it provides that environmental elements, artificial intelligence, inanimate objects, and, of course, animals shall not be granted personhood in the state of Idaho. They're clearly afraid that the courts of Idaho are going to go crazy because, you know, those crazy courts out in Idaho and grant an animal personhood. And then they'll be screwed, won't they? (laughs) Like, these people are so paranoid. They're so anxious because they know what they're doing is evil. And they just they just need everybody else to not know it. Utah also, the Utah legislature is similarly going nuts. The Animal Enterprise and Working Animal Regulation. This is similar to the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act at the federal level. Utah wants to prevent any city, town, township, county, etc., any subdivision of Idaho from uh, doing anything that would prohibit the operation of an animal enterprise. And an animal enterprise is basically everything. It's a competition, an aquarium, a circus, a farm, feedlot, zoo, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, the the state legislature of of Utah is terrified that the towns of, of Utah don't want, and let's face it, we're talking about factory farms here. We're not talking about zoos. (laughs) They were talking about factory farms. So they're trying to prevent, the state is actually trying to prevent towns and counties from passing laws to protect themselves. Well, there's democracy for you. (laughs) What? All right. Portugal. Anxieties are rising in Portugal as well. The term vegan leather has been banned in Portugal. This is from Plant Based News. And uh, yeah, that pretty much says it. Any company that uses plant-based prefixes such as vegan, synthetic, or pineapple, along with the term leather on their products, could face fines and prosecution. I guess Portugal has a lot of leather. I don't know. They, they have a big leather industry. And uh, other, other countries have, have also banned these kinds of, of terms. I don't, I don't know what they think is going to happen. Like, like if you call something vegan leather... Do they really think that people are going to think it's like leather made out of an animal? Like, are people in Portugal stupid? Do they think people in Portugal are stupid? I don't know. Now, our, a story from our favorite, Hannah Thompson Weeman from the Animal Ag Watch column at meetingplace.com. Activist investor launches campaign against McDonald's. You might have heard of this story. It's about Carl Icahn, the very wealthy, very uh, active and activist investor who, uh, you know, does, I I don't know that much about him, so I shouldn't try to explain too much about him. But, you know, he buys shares in companies and then pushes them to adopt certain policies. But not necessarily things that that you might care about, but in this particular instance, apparently influenced by his daughter. Though I don't want to imply that Carl doesn't also care about animals. He's trying to improve animal welfare. And we're only talking about getting rid of gestation crates, which, as we know, is the very, very, like, it, it is an improvement in animal welfare. It definitely is. But you couldn't get a much lower bar than that. But, you know, Hannah, she believes that he's only doing this under the guise of improving animal welfare. Quote, make no mistake, 
The true intention is to reduce efficiency and drive up costs, forcing consumers to buy less meat. Uh, you know, I'm okay with that. <laughs> yeah. That's my intention. Of course, I'm not in charge of these campaigns. Though I would also like to see us get rid of gestation crates because they're hideously, horrifyingly cruel. I would just also like to see people buy less meat. So apparently they've tried, he's tried this before. His daughter used to work for HSUS and, and, but again, he, basically he's teaming up with HSUS, according to Hannah, to pressure McDonald's again, because McDonald's made a pledge to get rid of gestation crates, but, but they're not upholding it because producers are able to keep sows in stalls until they are confirmed pregnant. Well, yeah, that would mean they're not upholding it. While they expected the use of crates to be banned altogether. Well, yeah, because that's what that's what it was about. They were supposed to be banned. Of course, we're not even talking about farrowing crates, which are after the piglets are born. Pathetically, McDonald's, who long ago promised to get these out of its supply chain, has not done so. So let's hope that Carl is successful. It's good to have a few rich people on our side, isn't it? And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hold up. 